This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It's been just over a week since Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion appearing to overturn Roe was leaked to the press. Today we welcome two guests, both likely familiar to the Commonweal audience, to share their reactions and thoughts. Molly Wilson O'Reilly, Commonweal's editor-at-large, whose column, When an Abortion Isn't an Abortion, appeared in our March issue. And Natalia Imperatori Lee, a Catholic theologian and professor at Manhattan College and author of Quentime, Narrative in the Ecclesial Present. Molly and Natalia talk not only about the potential consequences of the overturning of Roe, but also about women's reproductive health, their experiences as mothers, and what a culture of life might really consist of. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. My immediate reaction when I saw that this had been released and, you know, what it contained was just like, oh, no, this is bad. This is bad news. And then a sort of wry amusement that that's where I am now, having grown up, you know, I was born in 1980. So growing up completely post-Roe as like a Catholic school kid, praying that Roe would be overturned, that in in an environment where working for the end of this particular regime in law in our country was as much a marker of Catholic cultural identity as First Communion dresses and, and praying the rosary, that of course this was what we always dreamed of, right? And I'd never been a huge pro-lifer, but it was just, it was in the water. It was part of what you grew up with. And so to realize that I had ended up in this place where it looked like it was happening and all I felt was dread was fascinating. To me, I don't, did did you feel the same way about it, Natalia? Or? Yeah, I think my evolution probably was a little bit more prolonged, or like it ended earlier. It, it ended pretty much as soon as I started having children or having pregnancies. I should say that really flipped a lot of switches for me. But in terms of having seen it coming, it was my feeling when I wasn't expecting the leak. I don't think anybody was expecting the leak. But it was that same kind of, it was a repeat of election day in 2016, of the Kavanaugh confirmation, this kind of just uh, a recycling of that pit in your stomach of, boy, everybody said this wasn't going to happen. But deep down inside, my biggest catastrophizer said, yes, it is going to happen. And here we are, it's happening. And then a kind of mixture of, numbness, just kind of like, well, I guess, what did we expect? This has been a boulder that's been rolling down this hill for quite a few decades now. And just the sense of powerlessness, right? This kind of powerlessness and also just, it's not defeat, but like just exhaustion. I don't know how many more Kavanaugh days I have in me, how many more days of trying to avoid social media so as not to exacerbate my own anger and anxiety about something over which I personally don't have a ton of power. And then some some grief, I think, about all the years that I didn't talk about these issues in class, all the years that I avoided it because it is still very much a third rail for Catholics with any kind of position in the Catholic Church. And how it's just so 
Yeah, the whole thing is just so depressing because it feels inevitable and you feel powerless. And I'm pretty sure that's part of the plan <laughs> is to make us all feel really defeated and powerless and we don't have much of a say. But yeah, Molly, I grew up like you. I grew up where praying to Enroe was like a really normal and seemed like a solution to a problem. Whereas the older I've gotten, and again, once I once reproduction became a part of my life, right, uh, I realized it's simply not. It's not an instrument of of change. Um, right. I, I feel like I had sort of two journeys happen. First was the sort of long, slow adulthood of growing out of that childhood view of like, well, that yes, that would solve it, right? This is it's wrong and it's bad, and if we take it away, then that would fix everything, and so we pray for that. And getting older, and of course, especially in the last 12 years or so of, as you say, actually personally experiencing what women's reproductive health involves and all the things that pregnancy and childbirth can mean and fertility can mean that just you're pregnant and then you have a cute baby. The ultrasounds are fun along the way, that there's a whole lot else in that world that isn't addressed at all in, in this, we have to pray to overturn Roe. And then at the same time watching, again, slowly watching the, all the compromises that I was seeing Catholic leadership make in order to keep walking with the GOP on this issue, on everything else that seemed like it was supposed to matter. And as the, the Republican Party, from my perspective, was getting more and more demoralized and more and more depraved really in the last few years and that, that nothing seemed to be enough to peel away the decision that the Catholic leadership had made. So this is the, the team we're on because we're going to get this done. So that was that has been really eye-opening and really hard to watch. And then there was the short and sudden radicalization of that, that I wrote about recently in Commonweal where I had my own medical crisis where I suddenly saw, oh, this this issue of needing access to reproductive services is has a whole area of it that the Catholic Church or Catholic teaching or the pro-life movement doesn't want to talk about. And and we'll gaslight you about that. That's not true. And or not common or not. That, or it's yeah. So that I didn't know that left me feeling powerless and despairing and all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I keep coming back to, and here this is, I'm obviously talking about my own complicity in this, which I've tried to address since in, in classes, especially mm -hmm. about the kind of ignorance that we're kept in about women's bodies and women's bodies as a constant site of shame and silence, mm -hmm. whether it's separating boys and girls in middle school to give them the, the adolescence talk and the girls talk. I, I teach a, a class on sexuality and I always have the students tell me what they learn about sex and all of them still say that they separated out the boys and the girls in the religious schools. And the girls' talk takes 45 minutes. And the boys are done in five or 10, and then they get to go to the gym. <laughs> yep. And so I'm like, okay, well, why? I mean, I get the sense that maybe it'll make the kids uncomfortable, but lots of things make kids uncomfortable. And we make them do it, right? We make them uh -huh. kick teams publicly to play kickball. And that's really embarrassing if you're not a good athlete. So whatever. We don't talk about things like menstruation and pregnancy. I have students who are adults who didn't know that women tend to bleed for six weeks after their pregnancy. And these are women who could get pregnant that week. 
(laughs) And so we don't talk about it. And then it becomes this mysterious thing. And that's where we get people who are speaking and legislating as if sexual intercourse plus nine months equals bouncing baby boy, you know, or healthy, bouncing, adorable baby at the end in all but very rare circumstances, which is a complete falsehood. What really struck me, I think, when I, so if you haven't read my column, listeners, what happened to me was I had a, a very early pregnancy end in a miscarriage, but the miscarriage didn't, my body didn't release it, is what they say, it didn't resolve itself. And I ultimately was hemorrhaging and I had to have uh, a procedure called a DNC because I was going into shock. And so that saved my life. And that procedure is essentially an abortion. It is the same procedure that you would use to for a so-called elective abortion at that same period. But of course, in my case, there was no viable pregnancy to save. There was no moral decision to make. It was just about, could there be a doctor who knew how to do this, who was available to do this, who was able and willing to take you know, any legal risk, which thank God in a non-Catholic hospital in New York, there wasn't, those questions didn't exist. Anyway, when I went through all of that, and like you say, Natalia, I even here, this was my sixth pregnancy. I, and I still wasn't fully aware that these things could happen. But when I went through all of that, I realized if you could somehow, setting aside for a moment the question of whether law is the right instrument to impose a kind of moral ideal, right? But if you could wave a magic wand and make everybody accept and adhere to the whole system of morality that the Catholic Church uh, sees as right and correct for everyone, such that there were no pregnancies conceived in any circumstances where they wouldn't be warmly welcomed, even if you could do that, which of course you can't, you would still have people in a situation like mine where they followed all those rules and they ended up on the brink of death because of human frailty, because of physical frailty, which is something that you can't legislate away and you can't moralize away. It just exists. And Mm -hmm. when I sort of tried to bring that, what I thought, okay, now I remember thinking in the hospital, like, oh no, I'm going to have to talk about this now. Like I can't not talk about abortion anymore. And it took me a long time to figure out what that was going to mean. But when Mm -hmm. I tried to kind of bring that story and say, what am I supposed to do with this? as a, a person who you know values life and and now knows that this is a thing i still get people saying well that's but that's not you don't need to worry about that that's not what we're doing that's not that doesn't happen that's not mm-hmm. what these laws would do um, but it is <laughs> but it is right people just can't like there isn't any way to deal with the fact that like unless women can access reproductive care they could die mm-hmm. uh, and i i don't know what it will take. I, I had a similar experience. My first pregnancy was a mis- miscarriage. I didn't find out until 14 weeks that my body was not doing anything about it. I had to take Cytotec, which is, I think it's misoprope. I don't know the, the full name. It's misoprestone right. or something like that. But anyway, it's a, a medication abortion. By the way, I was at a very prominent Catholic university. I was married already. Mm-hmm. And that insurance covered that mm-hmm, medication mm-hmm. abortion. And on the one hand, it was it was unexpected and I was sad, Mm -hmm. but I was relieved in a big way, too, because I was like, okay, well, I know I can get pregnant, which I didn't think I could at first. And then 
they were able to give me a reason for the miscarriage, right? It was because actually Latinas tend to have very low base levels of folic acid. Again, the things you learn when you're pregnant. Mm. And therefore, like it's recommended for women of Hispanic descent to take supplementary folic acid as soon as they're trying to have a baby. Again, didn't know this because when would I have learned this? So they were able to give me a reason and I thought, okay, all right, well, it's fine. And I got a lot of pressure from people that I should be a little bit more sad. I should be a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that. And I did. It was elective in that I didn't want to carry around a pregnancy that wasn't viable and just wait for it to happen automatically. That to me was a real torment. And I opted not to do that. When I talked to my mother, like when I still talk to family members about this, they are convinced that anti-abortion laws would not apply in that case. Uh And maybe that's true because you and I, Molly, look a very particular way. We Uh look very trustworthy in terms of narrating our own experience. However, we were we appeared less white. I wonder if the medical establishment would trust us to self-report. So, mm-hmm, for instance, mm-hmm. we have a history in this country of non-white women not being trusted with their own fertility through whether being sterilized by the state, as is the case in Puerto Rico, or just not being trusted, being utilized by the state for reproductive purposes or for testing or stuff like that. So imagine if a Black woman or someone who is poor walks into an emergency room hemorrhaging and claims that they had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Is that person Mm -hmm. going to be treated with the same kind of care and trust? Can we rely on our broken social systems to ensure that would happen? Absolutely not, right? I don't think there's any evidence that would be the case. Right. As soon as you put in laws that say that you can only have, the procedures can only be performed under very specific circumstances, then you invite the question of who's determining those circumstances and what criteria and how long will that take? How close to death does the person have to be? And after and who I, decides how close to death they're going right. to be? And I, after I had my own experience and started trying to write about it and research, I found, first of all, it's very difficult to find when uh, in in the wake of that i was seeing more and more headlines about this state and that state introducing and passing more restrictions and the question i always had would be well how is abortion defined because i'm not a seven-year-old anymore and i understand that (laughs) you can't just make a law that says no more abortion that it has to have definitions and if thens in it i'm not a lawyer but i know that much and it often wouldn't say that and so i would keep going in and saying what about someone like me? Like, how would they be affected? But what I did find when I started looking was testimonies from people who, there was one back in February in the New York Times, a woman named Catherine Stewart wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about an experience she'd had that sounded very much like mine, where she had a miscarriage, her body wasn't processing it, she went into uh, hemorrhage, but she went to a Catholic hospital and they, she thinks, were delaying treating it because they have these directives in place where it was, well, first you have to make sure, even though it's clear that this pregnancy is ending, even though it's clear that if this woman continues to bleed, she will die, you have to make sure first that there's no heartbeat or that there's no fetal activity before you can go forward with the procedure that would save her. And that's already happening in Catholic hospitals, regardless of what the state laws are about whether abortion is 
because the, those are the directives. And so if you have a statewide law that says you can't do these except when there's a confirmed miscarriage or when the in, woman's life is in danger, and then because of that, you shut down all the clinics where all the doctors work who know how to do those, or the person isn't available, has to come and do the exam. Or these things a are already happening. doesn't speak English. Mm-hmm. Or a woman, a Black woman whose pain is routinely downplayed by the medical establishment comes in complaining of severe abdominal pain. I mean, there are so many ways in which our distrust of non-white citizens and especially non-citizens can affect how this law is applied. I just don't know that there's evidence in our history of the state being able to enforce a law like this in a way that's even remotely impartial. And so just as a matter of justice, as a matter of fairness, and and like, I thought these were Catholic values, (laughs) the idea that people who are not white would be more severely policed by a law like this one demands that we experience this law as an injustice. I don't know. I just, on the one hand, I think of women's bodies as sites of kind of silence and shame. And I'm also thinking about how once we get past the kind of protect the very most vulnerable, i.e. The, the beings that depend on the, their mothers for being able to grow, once we get beyond that, it turns into children as punishment, right? <laughs> the uh-huh. very view that supposedly exalts the child as the, the most fundamental blessing immediately flips to... Well, you made X, Y, and Z choice, and therefore you deserve, this is the natural consequence of this choice, as if a child were a a punishment deserved or a punishment earned. I find that to be a, a morally repugnant conversation to have about children. <laughs> Either we think that they're the greatest blessing and we treat them that way, which means paid parental leave for at least a year for at least both parents, free access to childcare, no cost birth and prenatal care. Or we face up to the fact that we view childbirth as a punishment <laughs> and child rearing as a punishment deserved. Because it's well and good. It's important, I think, for us to talk about the intricacies of non viable pregnancies, which have happened. I mean, an incredible amount, mm-hmm. not just early miscarriages and missed miscarriages, but people finding out at the 20-week scan that there are devastating anomalies with the fetus and having to terminate or decide to carry a pregnancy that is completely incompatible with life, including people who already had children mm-hmm. and what thinking about what that would do to the children that they already had and all those questions and stuff like that. Again, Many people choose to continue those pregnancies. And I think that is heroic and amazing. But I do not think that it should be compulsory. We don't have any mechanisms to really talk about the complexities of pregnancy. But moreover, we shy away as a country and as a church especially from talking about how this conversation is wrapped up in whiteness. 
And this conversation is why wrapped up in an assumption that everyone has the same kind of access to and receives the same benefit of the doubt from the medical and legal establishments in this country. And those are not assumptions that I think we can safely make. Yeah, but I think that similarly, we as uh, a church made, uh, and I think certainly me as a liberal Catholic who lives in a liberal state, made the same kind of set of assumptions that we could we weren't going to catch this car. This is the dog of the pro life movement was never going to catch this car, so we could safely be against abortion and not worry too much because. When we were in the hospital and we needed treatment, we were going to be able to get it. And so it's definitely been eye-opening to me that that was already not the case for a lot of people, and it continues to be not the case. And so when I saw, when I heard about this ruling, the first thing I was thinking of was, oh, the consequences of all of this are, are going to be bad, and they're going to be bad in ways that a lot of people who think this is good news just refuse to even acknowledge is mm-hmm. true. There's just a, a firewall up where all of that is a distraction and all of that is, is propaganda. And I, I don't know how many people have to tell their stories. I'm seeing so much of it now, like on social media, so many people being like, wait, no, that happened to me. And I, if I would be in that category, I was watching, there was a video that a woman in Texas, who I think is like a makeup influencer in her normal life, but she, she made this YouTube video telling a story about what it's like right now to be someone who had a miscarriage that she had to have medically treated. And this was like a, a really wanted pregnancy. And it now involved all these things where she was having trouble finding an OB to treat her when she found out she was pregnant because she was high risk. Then after she had the ultrasound, found out the pregnancy was not viable. They ha- she had to come back another day and have another one for no medical reason to go through the pain again of, yes, you are still not going to have a baby. And then she ended up to have the DNC, she couldn't do it in a hospital because they wouldn't do it. So she had to go to a clinic where she had to walk through a bunch of anti-abortion protesters who were saying, you don't have to do this to her. Yes, she does. She, she actually really has to or she'll die. Mm-hmm. And that there's been a whole pro-life movement built around not telling that story or not mm-hmm. acknowledging that that. And, and uh-huh. so, I, yeah, I, I feel very powerless and, and helpless now, especially because it's still hard for me to make a complete switch to the other team, right? And side with full-throated support for uh, abortion access, mostly because that rhetoric tends to involve a lot of sneering at the idea that fetal life should be perceived to have any value. But Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous to think of a developing life in the womb as human in any sense. I'm not sure that anybody really thinks that way all the time. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of pro-abortion or pro-choice rhetoric that talks about it that way, that that's just a foolishness and a fiction. And mm-hmm. I, I don't find that useful or helpful or a path forward either. But I, I, my, the pro-life argument that always made the most sense to me, the, the pro-life perspective that made the most sense to me was the idea that why should this be more than just a personal moral issue, right? That the, if the government permits or enables human life at any stage to be threatened, to not be protected or to not be given rights, then that's their slippery slope. And then where will it stop? But especially in the last 
decade or so, I feel like all of the things that I thought were on that slippery slope have been revealed to be actually fine and okay with the people who are still trying to make abortion illegal, that mm-hmm. torture and mistreatment of refugees and mass shootings that result in only a, a greater freedom to own and use guns and climate change and corporations taking no responsibility for the ways that they kill people and a pandemic that we could have stopped from killing a million Americans, but we didn't. All of those things happening and being either directly because of policies enacted by the Republican Party or with no resistance from the Republican Party when they were in power. Yeah, all of those things have left me wondering, like, well, what am I? Am I the only one who actually thinks that the reason we should protect life from the womb is because we need to protect life always? And oh, and capital mm. punishment. I forgot mm. about capital punishment, mm-hmm. which is the big one. So, yeah, so that argument doesn't seem to work for anybody else anymore. So I don't know why I should be sticking with it, but it does mm-hmm. leave me wondering, well, well, then what? If we're supposed to be worrying about the most vulnerable, which I think we are as a church, then there's a whole set of vulnerable people that are being completely ignored by mm-hmm. this push for, we just have to, to bring it back to the states and let the states decide. My students laugh about so much when we start talking about feminism in class is this initial definition that Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza uses and others. It's just the question of, are women people? Mm-hmm. Do women get to be people in the way that other people get to be people. Do women have moral agency? Or is women's moral agency allowed and disallowed by the state? Do women get to make, are we capable of complex moral decisions? For instance, situations of war, right, where life and death are on the line, allows a soldier to make prudential judgments. Women are not given that. That ability is not recognized in a woman that is making a a life and death judgment about continuing a pregnancy, right? We are not, like, we can talk about fetal life having value without immediately jumping to and that value trumps (laughs) every other threat to human Uh life Uh every other aspect even of that woman's life right I'm I'm very conscious of the fact that anytime women want something for themselves it is fiercely attacked Uh Unless that something is at the service of someone else. I was teaching Latino Catholicism this semester, which is always a very fun class to teach in the Bronx because you get a lot of, (laughs) you know, Dominican kids and Mexican kids. And and we talk about this phenomenon of that was described by a sociologist, Evelyn Stevens, called Marianismo, which she calls the flip side of machismo. And Uh it's all about women's, you know, this is true in, in a number of different religions a sense of women's spiritual superiority and how, you know, women are responsible for the souls of men and women live to serve, want nothing more than their family's joy and are committed to taking on the sadness for their whole family, whether through mourning rituals or self-sacrifice or whatever, in the name of the family succeeding. And any woman who steps outside of that, whether it is not adhering to the specific mourning rituals or Interestingly, there's a caveat. If you are someone's mistress, you do not have to mourn. 
which I thought was nice. It's a real sort of endorsement against marriage, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, any kind of joy or self-actualization is viewed as bad womanhood. Uh-huh. And every kind of sacrifice, particularly sacrifice that in, results in self-injury or self-censure or never leaving the house again, is viewed as heroic virtue. How much of that is getting replayed in, in these conversations, right? Women are expected because of our moral superiority to have and display at all times heroic virtue. And women who choose not to sacrifice themselves to the point of death are viewed as selfish. Mm-hmm. Our, and our church does not have a very good track record endorsing women's self-actualization. Right. And I, don't, I wouldn't want a conversation like this to go by without really talking about women's personhood. Mm-hmm. When I was reading, you know, reading excerpts from anyway, uh, Alito's opinion, I, it was funny. I felt like oh, I, I, I recognize this as a Catholic, the way that he, first of all, just his whole thing. I, I don't have a lot of disillusionment left for me with the current Supreme Court. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I've read a number of things coming from them now that I just feel like, are you kidding me? Like, I, like maybe I should be on the Supreme Court because I can make a better <laughs> argument than that. The whole like, well, abortion's not in the Constitution. Like drop, like that just, what a stupid argument. But like- Neither's an AR-15. Right. We can't seem to get rid of those. But when he keeps, he talks about like the unenumerated rights and that what's actually in the Constitution, greater minds than me have already pointed this out. But if you go looking for references to women's autonomy or women's rights in a document that was written in the late 18th century, you're not going to find it. And then when he goes on to talk about how women have political power because they vote and they even vote more than men, you know what right you won't find in the original draft of the Constitution (laughs) is women getting to vote. And so it reminded me a lot of the way that we talk about women's access to authority and power in the church, where it's, well, I mean, we haven't done it before. Mm-hmm. And if it were really discrimination, we we wouldn't have been doing it all along because mm-hmm. we would do that because church doesn't discriminate. So it can't have be a discriminatory. Far more important role in the church <laughs> right. than the clergy because women, I mean, look at how we treat the Virgin Mary, right? right. It's obvious that we have a ton of respect for women as but long was- as they are silent virgins who are also mothers but the idea that we can't make progress uh, we can't make progress acknowledging that women have been left out because that would require acknowledging they had been left out which (laughs) is not something we can do because it would be a violation of our our dedication to our founding principles and then on that combined with his sort of sanguine attitude about or his apparently sanguine attitude in the opinion about how this should just be we'll return it to the people's elected representatives after just the full court press that the the Republican Party, with the help of the Supreme Court, has made against democracy actually being representative and in favor of cementing the minority rule that the Republican Party has been seeking, this idea that, well, you could people people can just vote that that's how it should be. I mean, that uh-huh. sounded a little more plausible 40 years ago than than it does now. Yeah, that's why this isn't, I mean... It's the the timing may have been somewhat of a surprise, but it's really not a surprise in that the groundwork for this has been laid for generations at this point. And we can't pretend this is something that's out of the blue or that this wasn't well thought out or that 
the mechanisms for continuing to criminalize things that relate to women's autonomy, like contraception Mm -hmm. or equal marriage, are not also on the table. And that's something that should worry us all, right? A number of my uh, old, old, old friends, friends from Miami, have texted me, hey, we all have kids about the same age. So, you know, junior high school. If my daughter gets in trouble, I can still send her to New York to you, right? You'll take care (laughs) of her, right? Maybe. But I don't know that I can guarantee that anymore, right? Uh I was like, well, why don't you go ahead and have her delete her period tracker app on her phone now and just teach them to go back to using a notebook like we did. And with that little tiny step back, like, I'm not going to track my period on my phone anymore. I'm going to track my period in a notebook or on a calendar in the living room. (laughs) Like I remember my cousin used to do, used to be like, God, everyone has to find out. Even that is starting to feel like, yeah, maybe we just have to think like 1960s radicals again. And must those 1960s radicals not be exhausted at this point? If I'm tired and I'm so late to this party, I can't imagine what women, feminists, Catholic feminists, a generation older, two generations older are thinking. If we know, we've known for years and years what makes abortion less likely to occur, and none of it is criminalization. All of it is social services, support around health, women's health, sex education and access to contraception. None of these things are things that the church has been on board with. Maybe the thing that's angering me the most now is watching Twitter Catholics and social media Catholics be like, well, now's the time to really Mm -hmm. support. And it's like, you have had years and years to really support these initiatives. And it has never been your goal, and I am not going to fall for the idea that it's your goal now. That's where the pro-life movement just kind of surrendered all of its legitimacy in this singular focus on the Supreme Court and the singular focus on criminalization. Even if there were other voices in the movement, they weren't loud enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And now here we are. And I don't know who's expected to believe that now the church is going to work really hard to support women in crisis pregnancies, but you can bet it's not going to be me. I read a piece in the Washington Post shortly after the Texas law was went into effect. And I can't remember the author now, but it was a profile of a woman who was running a like a maternal. It wasn't a crisis pregnancy center, but it was a social services just literally out of her own house trying to provide women with things that they needed, having gone through with unplanned pregnancies or single mothers. She was someone who was very deeply invested in pro-life, the pro-life movement, and had seen a need for this and was trying to, to put her money where her mouth was, put her lack of money where her mouth was, put other people's money where their mouths were and say, you know, okay, so if women do what you want them to do, then they need diapers and they need cribs and they need food and they need... And really the upshot of the piece, it was very sympathetic, but it, was, it, it just was a demonstration that you know, private charity is, cannot fill the gap that, that this woman was giving. It seemed like everything she had and trying to convince other people to give everything they had but the needs of a, a people raising children are enormous, and it requires government support for health care, government support for housing, for everything. All of the, the kinds of 
programs and supports to live a decent life that the Republican Party has historically been against, or when by historically in the last 50 years. And so I guess where I end up is you thinking about the pro-life movement saying, or pro-life people saying, okay, now we're going to get started really supporting women. That's what I would want to see and what I despair of seeing is that the the Catholic churches would reassess its political advocacy, having apparently reached this goal that we're, we've all been supposed to be wanting all this time and would say, okay, now is there a way that we can use our clout or even just try to shore up our own internal integrity and credibility to look at what does our, what sorts of policies should our people actually be invested in supporting if they want life to be valued at all its stages and if they want families to be supported? Because I don't see us on that path. And I think that's a big piece of why this news feels like very bad news to me. Yeah. I would say that one of our responsibilities as Catholics living in a pluralistic society is to recognize that our convictions are rooted in history. They must be rooted in history and that the United States government does not have a history of making laws about women's bodies that is not wrapped up in racism and white supremacy. And that now that many Catholics have gotten what they want and abortion law is reverting to the states, we should take note of reality and say, what are the trigger laws that are going to go into effect? None of them are Medicare for all. None of them are support for foster care systems that are so broken. All of them are increasingly regressive criminalizations of even more precarious times in even wanted pregnancies. It's just a fraught, sad time in the church's history and in the nation's history and certainly in in the history of women's lives. We will once again be watching women trot out their trauma in an effort to be considered human beings. And that's just, that makes me very sad. Sorry to end it on such a low note, but that's where I am. You can find Molly Wilson O'Reilly's column, When an Abortion Isn't an Abortion, in our March issue and on our website. Also on our website right now, When Timing is Paramount by Peter Steinfels, in which he writes about the possible reversal of Roe and the bishop's reaction. I'm Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.